Hello, and welcome to the fifth season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode, I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. Scene to Song now has a Patreon, and I've already released some bonus material there. Thank you to those who have already supported Scene to Song. My guest today is Rose Ginsberg. Rose is a community-based theater director, divisor, workshop facilitator, producer, and educator. Some of her favorite projects have included developmental readings of new musicals, an original site-specific puppet show for the New York Transit Museum, and multiple productions of The Vagina Monologues and A Memory, A Monologue, A Rant, and A Prayer, for the V-Day Campaign to End Violence Against Women and Girls. She is currently the director of Older Adult Centers at Lenox Hill Neighborhood House, where she also teaches script analysis and produced the pilot production of Into the Woods Senior in 2018. Her next production, The Music Man Senior, was interrupted by the COVID pandemic and is now planned for 2023. We're going to talk today about abolition in musical theater. I'm so excited that you're on the podcast. I am so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we'll get right into our get to know our guest questions. What was your first experience with a musical? So I was thinking about this and I realized there are kind of a bunch. Like I've just sort of been surrounded by musical theater since I was really, really little. My parents tell this story that when I was like three or four, if they would play um, the CD of the original Broadway cast of Phantom of the Opera on our stereo. I would just like come toddling into the room from wherever I was in the house. Um, like it, I was like summoned um, by the overture of Phantom of the Opera. Um, and when I was that little as well, I wouldn't go to sleep at night without listening to my cassettes of the soundtrack of um, The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. They were like my comfort music to fall asleep to. Um, and then in the theater, I remember when I was really small, we went to see Cats and it was probably in Philadelphia. It was probably on tour. Um, and I remember I had an aisle seat and there's the part, I think it's towards the end of the show where old Deuteronomy like walks down the aisle back up to the stage and my hand brushed the side of the costume. And I was like, mom, mom, I touched old Deuteronomy. Like it was the coolest thing that had ever happened to tiny me. I thought it was amazing. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> so those are some of my earliest memories. What was the last great musical you saw? So actually, just last night, I went with a friend to see Wise Children's adaptation of Wuthering Heights at St. Anne's Warehouse. I had read about it randomly through this website that I follow and was just like, oh, it's only here through this weekend. Let's grab tickets. And we did. And it was so cool. It was just such inventive staging and the way that they weaved the music in and out. And there was sort of a chorus who played the Moors because Wuthering Heights is on the Moors. Um, and it was gorgeous and it was really unique and I'm so excited. I'm just so glad that we, we got to see it. Nice. Yeah, I had heard about that. That sounded really interesting. It was really cool. What's a musical that people would be surprised to find out you love and why would they be surprised? 
I think the one that stands out for me here is the Scarlet Pimpernel. Um, I'm not generally a fan, a huge fan of Frank Wildhorn's stuff. Um, it's the sort of, you know, big spectacle musical that I don't generally gravitate to. But I loved the book when I was in middle school, um, despite having sort of come back to it as an adult and realizing it's problematic in many ways. But I loved it when I was in like sixth grade. Um, and then I heard the musical as a teenager and between Douglas Sills and Terrence Mann, right? They're just these stunning male voices in that show. Into the Fire is a great song. Falcon in the Dive is a great song. Just like, and there's, there's some in the show that I'm not as big fans of, but overall, I have a lot of affection for the Scarlet Pimpernel. Nice. I've never seen it. it. My high school actually did it after I left. And my sister, um, I think she had, may have left at that point too, but she was still like close enough to, that she saw it. But uh, yeah, I've never seen it. But I, but everyone who's seen it seems to like it. I feel like it must be Frank Wildhorn's like, you know, best show or something. <laughs> it's great fun. It's just great fun. Um, and the the song about men getting dressed up in fancy clothes, which I can't think of the title of right now. Um, it's just, it's silly and it's great. If you could require our government leaders to see any musical, not necessarily playing right now, which one would you have them see? So it feels kind of obvious to say Come From Away, but it was the first thing that I thought of when I was thinking about this question. And I think I stand by it, especially thinking about, you know, the recent political stunts from DeSantis in Florida um, and from the leaders of Texas, like putting um, new immigrant arrivals to the country on planes and just like sending them somewhere and intending it for it to be sort of a gotcha stunt of like, oh, people in liberal states don't want immigrants either. And having that be disproven, right, by by the welcome that people received in lots of places and the support that was given and the resources and it made me think of that, of I think sometimes people who want to exclude other people think that everyone feels that way. And to see this beautiful show, which is about acceptance and welcome and hospitality, I, I would want everyone to see that one. Nice. Uh, what moves you the most in a musical theater piece and why? those moments in a musical where you can tell that a character is breaking into song because there's so much emotion that it can't come out any either, any other way. Um, that's so beautiful. And it's something that this form does, I think better than any other. And it can happen with lots of different kinds of emotions. And I'm someone who I don't tend to show a lot of emotion in my everyday life. I tend to be fairly even keel Personally, professionally, it's, you know, part of who I am and part of what I prioritize is kind of having a, a handle on my emotions a lot of the time. And so for me, musical theater can be such an outlet to feel these huge feelings, these uncontrollable feelings, whether yourself as a performer or vicariously as an audience member. And so I was thinking about the epiphany in Sweeney Todd um, or... One Second and a Million Miles from Bridges of Madison County, 
where it's, there's just no other way for this life-changing emotion to come out of this person. And even in smaller moments where it's, there's sort of more mundane emotions or it's a less life-changing moment, like don't look at me in Follies where Sally is just so overcome that it has to come out through song. Or if I were a bell in Guys and Dolls of experiencing this love and this happiness that she never allows herself to feel. I love those moments. Cool. Well, that sort, your answer sort of segues into the next question, uh, which is what is a moment in the musical that you think gets to a complex emotional state you didn't think was possible to get to? So this is a show that I've known my whole life long before I understood what it was actually about. But A Little Night Music is one of my favorite, favorite musicals of all time. I'm a total Sondheim nut and it's one of my favorite Sondheim shows. And I think Send in the Clowns is that kind of a moment. And it's really interesting to me. And I know in Finishing the Hat, Sondheim wrote about how it was really interesting to him that this song became the standout that was recorded by so many artists and became this hit separate from the show because it's so rooted in the character and in the moment of the story. And there's almost, I look back at the lyrics, there are almost no emotion words in the song. Mm. It's, she's asking questions and she's commenting on the situation around her, but she's got these She's pulled between these different feelings of I love you and I need you and also I accept your rejection and I want you to stay but I'm going to give you up and I'm so devastated and also this is so funny and this is ridiculous and this is tragic and it's all sort of happening at once and I think it happens really beautifully in the song in the different style of the verses and the bridge where the verses are these sort of short clipped questions and then you get this beautiful line in the bridge of finally knowing the one that I wanted was yours. And she's more sincere and the sadness sort of comes out of her more. But it's all going on at the same time. And I, I love that moment in Desiree's story. Cool. Well, let's move on to our topic, which is something I'm super excited to discuss with you, which is um, abolition in musical theater, which is like a huge topic, but we're going to, um, abolition is a huge topic, <laughs> but we're going to, and abolition in musical theater is also a lot. So we will first start with the idea of abolition, because I think, um, you know, not a lot of people really understand what what that is, um, if it's even something they've heard about. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely something that I started looking into and learning more about in 2020, really. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'd been on a journey towards abolition for a long time, but especially during the pandemic and after the murder of George Floyd and with all of the protests that were happening, it's something that I started reading a lot more about and researching more and understanding more and it's become a big part of sort of the way I view the world so I always get really excited to talk about abolition yeah and um we were actually in a study group together studying abolition in that time so um definitely learned a lot and uh and, and I think 
during that time, of course, I relate everything to musical theater in, in, in some way at some time. So that's when my wheels started turning. Like, I, and, I mean, any pop culture, you can sort of see, um, you know, evolution come up in stories and, and threads of stories. So um, in some way, or the, or the ideas that evolution brings up, if not evolution itself. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. So what is abolition? <laughs> ah, the, the $10 million question. Um, so the political framework of abolition starts by looking at the prison industrial complex. And so for anyone for whom that's not a familiar term, um, I, I'm going to do a lot of quoting here because I've learned about abolition from a lot of incredible thinkers, um, especially but not exclusively Black women who've been working on this for a long time. So Mariam Kaba, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Ajaris Dixon, Adrienne Marie Brown, like there are incredible activists and writers and scholars, uh, Angela Davis, of course, doing amazing work on this. And so I'm going to quote from them a lot. Um, and this definition of the prison industrial complex and the definition I'm going to go into of abolition after that is actually from the organization Critical Resistance. Um, and they do a lot of amazing work. Highly recommend people check them out. But um, Critical Resistance defines the prison industrial complex or PIC as a term we use to describe the overlapping interests of government and industry that use surveillance, policing, and imprisonment as solutions to economic, social, and political problems. So when we talk about the prison industrial complex, we're talking about jails and prisons, right? We're also talking about the police. We're talking about the criminal punishment system, or the criminal justice system. Um, we're talking about the companies that use prison labor or that profit off of the prison complex in some way, right? We're talking about the military industrial complex and weapons. Like it's, it's huge. It involves a lot. So when we talk about the prison industrial complex, we're talking about a big sprawling thing. And when we talk about abolition, um, what critical resistance says, again, this is a pretty long quote, but I think it really gets at the heart of what this is. Um, and they say, prison industrial complex abolition is a political vision with the goal of eliminating imprisonment, policing, and surveillance, and creating lasting alternatives to punishment and imprisonment. Abolition isn't just about getting rid of buildings full of cages. It's also about undoing the society we live in because the prison industrial complex both feeds on and maintains oppression and inequalities through punishment, violence, and controls millions of people. Because the prison industrial complex is not an isolated system, abolition is a broad strategy. An abolitionist vision means that we must build models today that can represent how we want to live in the future. It means developing practical strategies for taking small steps that move us toward making our dreams real and that lead us all to believe that things really could be different. It means living this vision in our daily lives. Abolition is both a practical organizing tool and a long-term goal. So that's sort of the heart of it for me. For me, abolition is all about really taking a look at the systems that we live under and the systemic problems and systemic oppressions and saying, how are these baked into the institutions of our society and how can we dream and imagine and start to build in small or large ways alternatives that focus on supporting people and meeting people's needs rather than punishment and isolation and imprisonment.
I think that's a great um, uh, succinct uh, definition. And yeah, I think one of the, when I was understanding it, I mean, one of the things I saw people were thinking of abolition as just the taking away of things as opposed to it being, you don't just take away, you also create something new. It's not like just the absence of what has been here. But um, yeah, so now we talk about abolition in musical theater and what is that? <laughs> so, yeah. And so I, I think it's important to say up front that like, I don't think that any of the shows we're going to talk about are necessarily abolitionist musicals, right. right? I don't know that I know of any pieces of musical theater that set out with the intention of being abolitionist in their perspective um, and in the world that they're creating. But I do think that there are lots of musicals, obviously, that deal with policing and prison and oppression and systemic oppression and racism um, and white supremacy. And I think there are musicals that do it in such a way where they challenge those systems. And then I think there are musicals that sort of set out to challenge those systems and end up reifying them. Let's start with Les Mis, um, because I feel like Les Mis, Les Miserables, um, I'm in the middle of reading the novel now. So the novel uh, is a little bit more like fresh in my head than the musical, aside from like the score, like the, like I haven't seen the musical in a long, in a long time, but I, Same. so I, but I listened to it obviously, but I think the musical is just in its overall storytelling, pretty similar to the plot of the novel. Like they don't make huge changes. I think anytime you have this character who goes through, a, who is a branded a criminal goes through the system, uh, this time the system in, in France, uh, in, I guess it's the late 1700s, early 1800s is definitely a story that's going to, that's going to touch on the prison and police and, and all these issues that we're talking about. So I think there's sort of two characters that really stand out to me in thinking about Les Miserables from an abolitionist perspective. One is, is he an abbot who gives Valjean the candlesticks at the beginning of the musical? Oh, he's, um, he's a bishop. The bishop, yes. So one character is the bishop who does not turn Valjean into the police, right? And who gives him the candlesticks to start a new life. Yeah. And is kind of an abolitionist, right? Is saying, I am not going to turn you into this system that exists to lock people away. I see that you have potential as a person who can do good. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to give you some financial support and I'm going to give you my belief in you so that you can go help other people and be a good person in the world. And at this point, uh, Jean Valjean has already been in prison and like gone through that kind of torturous uh, system and has uh, escaped uh, and is kind of roaming around the countryside and happens to come upon this town where he's taken in by the bishop. And there's even kind of an indictment from the syst- of the system from the beginning of the show, right? Because we understand that despite the fact that Valjean is technically a thief, right, is guilty 
in the eyes of the law, looking at things in a very sort of black and white, did you do this or not way. We understand why he did it. We understand his desperation. We understand the oppression that he was facing and that he was just trying to feed himself and the people he cared about. And so already we're saying, was this appropriate? Why has he been put into this system when he was just desperate and hungry? Right. Right. So he, so it's like the black and whiteness of like, he, he's done a criminal act, but like, why, like, if you step back, like, why has that actually been criminalized? Exactly, exactly. And we see that this is a system, which I think rings true to me about, you know, obviously, this isn't set in contemporary United States, but rings true to me about our system, in that we're looking at a criminal punishment system that is not concerned with harm or the harm and the difficulties that people are facing. It is concerned with, did you break the law? Mm-hmm. And that's the only question at hand. Right. And then, obviously, the other character, right, who's so caught up in this is Javert, mm-hmm. who is Valjean's nemesis, who is completely aligned with this system. He believes in it. He upholds it. It's central to his worldview. He wants criminals locked up and he wants good people who are defined as not criminals to be free from criminals, right? He's very black and white in his thinking. And arguably, it destroys him. Mm-hmm. And when he is made to question the absoluteness of this system, he can't live with it. Right. Right. And you have Valjean, like, having gone through it, like, he's achieved, like, a, a redemption, or, or he's changed, you know, he's gone through that journey and this is early in the book (laughs) that he's done early early in the plot that he's done this um it's not just a story about that you know so we already see him like go to this town become the mayor of a town and like transform this town like you you can't say he hasn't done you know he's not like worthy of like his transformation because he's done He's, you we actually see him go and like do good work and change other people's lives. Yes. And Javert can't handle the contradiction. Javert is like, no, I don't care what you've done. You're a criminal. You broke the law. You need to be in prison. He's got no context. He's got no nuance. Right. He's very by the book. And he's aligned himself with this system that like orients his life and allows him to make sense of the world for himself. Right. Right. Um, and allows him to see himself as righteous in right. his lack of ability to forgive other people. Yeah. yeah. And, and then he can't, in the end, when he is spared by the person that he has been working to bring down, essentially the person he was convinced was a bad person, when that person saves his life, he can't handle the complexity. He can't look outside of the very stark morality that he's built up for himself and it's sad yeah yeah i i just find lame is so interesting in that way because here we have this character who's the hero of the story we're on his side jean valjean throughout the whole thing and like he's someone who has you know done a criminal act escaped from jail like 
like, how can you say he should go to prison? Like this musical is like saying like, how can you say he should go to prison? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and technically, the bishop, our purely good character, should also be in jail, right? Because he abetted a criminal and he mm-hmm. um, stood in the way of a police investigation and he lied to the police. Mm-hmm. It, it's really interesting because in all of these ways, I think it's a very, you know, anti-prison, anti-policing story. And yet, I think it also allows us to just look at it as for these characters. Mm-hmm. I think people are often willing to say like, oh, well, they're an exception, right? Jean Valjean is an exception. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we couldn't do this for everybody, but he's a good person and so an exception should be made. Right. And it is a show that I think is not as successful in dealing with larger systemic questions mm-hmm. because there's a whole revolution that is attempted. There's a whole revolution that is attempted on the part of the poor and downtrodden people of Paris and it fails and everyone is killed except for Marius. And then after that, we're just sort of supposed to go back to like, but Marius and Cosette get married, hooray, everything's all right now. And it's like, well, all of the conditions of poverty and oppression that put Valjean and Javert in the places they were are still here. So what about everybody else? Right. And the show doesn't really do that. It ends with this sort of hopeful chorus of everyone singing. Is it, do you hear the people saying? Yes. It's do you hear the people saying? Thank you. (laughs) Um, And so we end on this sort of like exciting vision of a continued revolutionary spirit among the people, but they're also not actually having a revolution they're not actually changing anything the Mm -hmm. systems are left standing yeah so they realize that the you know somebody needs to go back to prison like they think they found Jean Valjean but it's like another person yes um Mm -hmm. and that's when Jean Valjean is like no I have to I have to go back I, I I have to turn myself in in that moment like it's not just him he's like someone else is gonna this is gonna happen to somebody else and like i can't i can't let that happen obviously that's not a larger systemic thing but like just in that moment it's not just him yeah and in some ways it's just even more of a reason why he is the hero right why he is the exception yeah because he's he's taken this generosity and this faith and this support from the bishop and he's become a person who won't let anyone else suffer or who tries to prevent as much suffering as he can even if it means harm to himself right um and yeah and it's and it's also like if he didn't do all those things should he would we be fine with him going back to prison (laughs) exactly (laughs) he's like like if we just had someone who got out of jail and was like he he's like i'm not gonna i'm gonna try and live like a good life but I'm not going to like proactively do all these <laughs> great things like become a mayor. If he, if he just led a quiet life in like a little shed <laughs> somewhere and um, Javert found him, would we, would we be more okay with him going back to jail at that point? Yeah. It's a good question from a storytelling perspective. Do you have to then really prove yourself worthy of not being back of not being in jail whereas like i 
who has never been to jail don't have to prove that. I don't have to prove to anybody that I'm not, that I shouldn't be in jail. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of it there too is from the bishop, it's the the faith in him as a good person, the, the seeing him as a full human, seeing the bishop seeing Jean Valjean as mm-hmm. a full human being and say, I believe in you. I think you can be a force for good in the world is crucial to how he moves forward. The other piece of it is the financial support. He gives him these candlesticks to say, use these to build a new life for yourself. Because if he didn't have that, how could he reinvent himself as someone who deserves quote unquote freedom? Right. And we see that in our own criminal punishment system with recidivism, right? Because mm-hmm. people go to jail for whatever it is and then they come out and they, they don't have the resources. So many people don't have the resources to then begin anew or reinvent themselves. They can't get, a, it's, it's not easy now right. to get away from the stigma. You can't just reinvent yourself as someone new the right. way that Jean Valjean could because of the whole system of surveillance that we have. So he's he's given support in multiple ways in order to then prove himself worthy which as you're saying Mm -hmm. you know why does he even have to live with that burden in the first place but yeah you're right at the end of the day at the end of the day (laughs) (laughs) you're another day older yeah um at the end of the day it doesn't you're you're left in the same you're left in the same place basically you were at the beginning of the show aside from now some people are dead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but in we, terms of larger issues. Yeah. Exactly. We've seen one good man have ultimately a fulfilling life. We've seen one bad man, however you want to characterize Javert, one powerful man fall. Mm-hmm. And we've seen a lot of revolutionaries die. Mm-hmm. and everything else is the same. Are there any shows that change in like a like a larger way like that? Or is that why there are really no abolitionist <laughs> musicals? <laughs> I don't... I don't know of any. Yeah. Um, and it's also... One of those things I think where where questions abolitionists get a lot right are, well, if we shouldn't have this system, then what do you think we should do? Mm-hmm. What are we going to do instead? Right, right. And that's that's not an invalid question, right? Obviously, if you're talking about abolishing a major system, there are other things that need to be put in place. But I think so much of abolition is the understanding that we are eternally in process Mm -hmm. and there is no fixed state that we'll get to where everything will be okay. So it's always about creating new things and trying new things. Um, Mariam Kaba has a website that she maintains called 1 million experiments. And it's highlighting different abolitionist projects, no matter what scale they're on. So that if people are interested in abolition or trying an abolitionist framework in different areas, 
you can see what are people doing now? Because there's a lot of different small things that lots of different groups of people are building around the country and around the world. And so I don't know of any shows that like end on a, and then we fixed it and everything was fine. Or then we found the system that was going to provide real justice for all the people or whatever. Um, But uh, it would be more of a fantasy show because, or some kind of, not non-realistic show because obviously we have not in real life found another system that is yeah. right now it's yeah. it's interesting having this conversation right now i didn't plan to talk about this show but the show that comes to mind is pippin ah because in pippin you end with um pippin and um, the oh, average ordinary kind of woman, Catherine, um, and her son, you end with Pippin and Catherine and the boy mm-hmm. stepping outside of the framework of the circus and the entertainment and the players and saying, I don't know what it is that I want, but I know that this isn't going to bring me the fulfillment and the happiness. Yeah. And so I'm going to search somewhere else. And so there's something in that show about turning your back on the system that you thought you believed in to try to find something new, but it doesn't provide a vision of what that something new is. But I don't think it needs to. Like, I think that's it is a really interesting place for a show to end. So what are some, I guess, some other shows that maybe don't um, kind of end on a systemic change, but like Lame is like grapple with uh more of these issues one is chicago mm-hmm. one is sweeney todd yeah and then if we want to look at the specifically american context there's some in ragtime as well sweeney todd seems somewhat similar to lame is in that you can obviously like this person should not be in jail like <laughs> it has that kind of aspect of it like the the system that's in place is obviously not working not working because of what it did to this one person yeah kind of thing and benjamin barker is if we're talking about legally right and and sort of legal definitions of guilt and innocence benjamin barker is completely innocent mm-hmm. he has committed no crime he is the pawn of a very powerful judge who wants Benjamin Barker's wife. Right. And so he's shipped off to a penal colony without having done anything. And then it is his imprisonment and his encounter with this system essentially that turns him into the monster Sweeney Todd that he becomes. You could look at Sweeney Todd as like the system works but it was abused. But you also see like how somebody who went through the system is forever traumatized and changed and um will never you know will never be the same it does yeah it does show the after some the after effects of either abuse of the system or having gone through the system itself yeah and he does describe um his imprisonment itself as a living hell he mm-hmm. uses those words um but i think yeah you, you could look at it as one powerful person who abused, well, two powerful people because you have Judge Turpin and you have Beetle Bamford. 
but I think that the show does paint a portrait of a legal system that is a plaything for powerful men to enact their petty little jealousies and revenges and power plays Mm -hmm. however they want to with no accountability or oversight. Right. So Judge Turpin just manipulates the system however he wants and uses his power to get whatever he wants. And Beetle Bamford is his loyal little toady who will do anything to curry favor with the powerful man. And so they're the only examples of the system that we see. And so I think that the picture of that system the show paints is, if it's not a totally corrupt system in and of itself, it is entirely open to the worst kinds of corruptions because Mm -hmm. it exists as part of this class system and this oppression that's happening. Um, And there are a lot of lyrics about that class system and about the power dynamics of London at the time when you have in the very opening scene um, when Sweeney Todd has first come back and he says um, there's a hole in the world like a great black pit and it's filled Mm -hmm. with people who are filled with shit and the vermin of the world inhabit it and it goes by the name of London at the top of the hole sit the privileged few making mock of the vermin in the lower zoo so he's he knows that this is a whole systemic thing and he paints that for us from the start Right. And then later, he's also got the lyrics about um, in all of the whole human race, Mrs. Lovett, there are two kinds of men and only two. There's the one staying put in his proper place and the one with his foot on the other one's face. Of course, then the way he, you know, is sort of the the madness or the fury or however you want to characterize it, that he is driven to by first his arrest, his imprisonment, the torture he faces in prison, and then coming back to what the world has become and what has happened to his family in his absence. He becomes sort of this force of violence that isn't really acting against the system. It's just going back into this cycle of revenge where he just wants the judge and he doesn't care how many people he has to kill to get to him. So he doesn't exactly take a systemic approach to the injustice that he sees, but he does see it. Yeah. Yeah, this also, because I have Parade on my mind from just having seen it, it Mm. also, just the conversation about how people abuse the system, it, uh, and just using it as like, well, you know, we have to, in that show, a crime was committed, it's a different situation, but then you, you see, like, all the people in power being, you know, saying things like, well, we have to, we have to pin this on somebody, or we have, we have to, we have to find somebody who did the, guilty, you know, who did this, and it would be great if it was this person. <laughs> yeah. Like this, this, this will work. This person works best for us. Like you could say, like, oh, like if, if they didn't abuse the system like that, then maybe the system would work. But like, or the system doesn't work because it's so easy to abuse it um and you can't have a system if if a system's so easy to abuse it's not a good system yeah a lot of popular discourse definitely in america today i think um and throughout american history really 
there's a, a way of talking about our criminal justice system, our criminal punishment system, that looks at it as set apart from the rest of life, right? Mm-hmm. Courtrooms are hallowed spaces, and this is a place where only facts matter, and it's the search for justice, which is righteous, and the Supreme Court is literally in this building that looks like a temple, right? That is like steps up and, and is seen as this separate, I don't want to use the word divine, but it is seen as like height, a higher plane in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that these shows provide us a window into the machinations of the system to say, actually, it's a part of everything. Everything is a part of everything. Right. People are the people who run these systems and people aren't perfect and therefore systems cannot be perfect however they're designed. Because they're operated by human beings with the biases and the power struggles and the ignorances and the hatreds and all of the things that we have. And so the system can never fully be set apart because it's a part of us and it's a part of the world. But I think Chicago does a really good job of showing us that about the system. Is it's like, oh, this, this is a media circus just like everything else, right? right. This is not separate from the rest of the world. It is down in the muck with everybody. Yeah, and what's cool about Chicago, now that I'm thinking about it in this way, is that we're in the jail with them. Um, Whereas like in a lot of these other shows, like we're on the outside looking in, like that's happening over there. Whereas like with Chicago, we are are with them in the jail. Yeah. Going through this. Yeah, definitely. And we see... I was reading about how like there was hesitation on the part of the playwright of the original play Chicago to give the rights to Fosse and Verdon. And there, I don't remember if this was a fact or if it was just speculation that it was because she didn't want it glamorized. Mm-hmm. And it's a glamorous show in a lot of ways, right. but I don't think that it like glamorize. Well, I, I guess it depends on how you stage it and you can do a lot of different things with the show, but I do think that it shows you the glamorous veneer that people try to put on it and also the rot that that's hiding. Right. Yeah, definitely. I think the show definitely does that. I don't know. I'm just thinking of various songs from the show that are kind of about the rot (laughs) that's underneath. Um, Mm -hmm. Like one that's just at the top of my head, like the class, like whatever happened to class. And they're talking about like, all these things like that would be class, but it's all not <laughs> non classy things. Yes. <laughs> yes. Or even something like when you're good to mama. Yeah. Right? Which is all about bribery and corruption. Right. In a way, it's this sort of empty spectacle that is totally divorced from the realities of the violence at hand, right? There are actual murders that we're talking about in this show. Right. And at the same time, it it continually sort of points you back to like, yeah, this this is an empty spectacle that is celebrating like death and violence and corruption. And yeah, you're humming along and then you're like, wait, what? right. <laughs> you're all terrible. <laughs> yeah. And why shouldn't an indictment of the criminal punishment system? Why shouldn't it be fun? Right. <laughs> we can have joy along with our analysis. That's important. Right, exactly. 
and it's you know it's an extreme vision obviously in a lot of ways and also i think if you look at you know the media circuses around some of the big showy trials when i was thinking about the show in preparation for this podcast i kept thinking about the johnny depp ever heard trial mm-hmm. and all of the meshagas around it right um and the way that it none of it was about facts right it was all about interpretation and bias and blame and stereotypes and Hollywood glamour or not right. and exposing, you know, and yeah. It's all the same. Yeah. <laughs> no structural change there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's still all about, you know, who can get rich off of manipulating the system. Right. And who has the resources to manipulate the system the best. Mm-hmm. And who, like the Hungarian woman in the show, has no resources at all and can't create a media circus and right. is just, you know, ground under the heels. Right. What about ass- assassins? Yeah. I think assassins has some perspective in common with Chicago in that it is a picture of disaffected people seeing violence and murder as a path to fame. I think Assassins is so much about people who feel that the system has failed them. Right. And whether they're justified in that feeling or not, right? Like, obviously, you know, Booth is a racist extremist. Um, And I don't want to paint any of the the characters as heroes because they've all got their own, you know, crap going on. But if you look at Zangara, if you look at Chogosh, if you look at Oswald, um, Sam Bick, definitely in his monologues, you're looking at these portraits of people who feel that they have been abandoned by the system. And it was making me think a lot about how young people especially young men get radicalized Mm -hmm. and that's something that we're looking at so much of right now is the way that young men are being radicalized um, into extremist right-wing fascist movements you know by youtube and different um online communities and and in real life communities um but one thing that it made me think about was in, in the light of assassins is when you have a system that is solely focused on individualism and achieving for yourself and on never allowing any resources to go to anyone who could be considered undeserving of them. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that the system can do is punish people for crimes that have already happened how do you find ways to welcome people into community and say there is a place for you before this radicalization happens? Yeah. It really brings up the idea of like community care and like how, how are we building communities this way? And and I guess then the, like, where do we see this in musical theater? (laughs) Like what are some shows that are, about community care. I mean, I guess Come From Away could be considered one. Definitely. Um, yeah. I was thinking a lot. I 
I know we've talked about this before, but Brigadoon, uh, for some reason that show is so interesting to me as like re in relation to these ideas because you have this like community that's like all made a decision about a system and like, which for those who don't know the show is that <laughs> the town is going to only exist in the real world every, like every 100 years the town will resurface and they all go to sleep and when they wake up, it's a hundred years later in the real world. And in the show, these two guys in the, the 1940s, when the show is, was written, come are hiking in Scotland where the town exists and come up, it's, it's that day. And they come upon the town and, and uh, kind of get brought into that community. Um, and there are all these then, but then it's like, there are all these questions like what, what happens when somebody from the outside wants to join that community or what happens when someone from that community wants to leave and they have the, one of the rules of the community is you can't leave or everybody dies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, so like it, I, I just feel like it raises all these issues and what ends up happening to the guy who wants to leave is that they just end up, I mean, he tries to leave on his own and they just have to end up killing him because that's that, like, that's the only way to really resolve that situation. Like what happens when somebody in our community is causing an issue? Like, what do we do with them? which I think is an aspect of abolition in the way of like, well, what are our, like, what are our alternatives? Like we, we put people in jail, we, we kill them. We to, you know, because how, that's how we know how to deal with things. Yeah. It's the sort of one of the central, I think, tenets of abolition is that no one is disposable right? No human being is disposable. And so, so much of what happens right now is I think the prison industrial complex that we have encourages us to take someone who is causing a problem, however serious or not serious that problem may be, and lock them in a cell and say, okay, now you people of the community, you don't have to think about them anymore, right? They're gone. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not your problem anymore. Don't worry about it. Except of course, that's not true. Because right. people have family and people have community and there are people who are concerned about people. And also everybody is a full human being like Jean Valjean with potential and no one is just disposable to be thrown in a cage. Right. And this question of, I think there's often a question of how, how do you cope with someone who wants to be part of the community and is causing harm? Mm -hmm. And then the flip side of that in Brigadoon is what do you do with someone who doesn't want to be a part of the community, but you've set up this expectation that they can't leave, which I think is a real struggle in a lot of sort of insular communities that don't want to let members of those communities go outside of them. Um, and how do you have flexibility for people? Um, what are the systems that people can put in place to you know, have accountability for people and also show care. They're very complicated questions. But this character who 
he's in love with someone else in the community who is marrying someone else. Right. And I think that's also an issue because it could be seen as like he is can't get the woman he loves. So he's going to like cause the, you know, cause all these issues and like kill the community. But I don't actually think that's what's going on. I think he's like, well, I can't have the woman I love here. I so I want out. Like I want then I should be able to go elsewhere and find somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it, and and so part of it is if you look at the former interpretation, right? Then there's the sort of how do we change patriarchy so that young men aren't brought up to believe that the woman that they want is theirs by right because it's, you know, you are a good person and then you get the girl and that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore says that abolition means you only have to change one thing, which is everything. <laughs> <laughs> so you have all of the systems of patriarchy and white supremacy and all of these things that people buy into that you can't, you know, build unoppressive systems while all of these oppressions exist. Right. Because again, they're, they're built by people, but then you also just have this, if if you take the sort of more charitable interpretation of this character, then it is just, I don't want to live somewhere where I, every day I have to see the woman I love married to someone else and live in the same small town of like a hundred people or whatever. Right. Um, <laughs> and that doesn't seem unreasonable. Right. And you also get, I mean, it's, it's also a weird situation where you have these two guys from the, you know, now world, I guess, what is it? 200 years after the, I forget what the timeline is for the people in Brigadoon, if they've only gone through like one day of this or two days or whatever. Um, but you have these people from like the 1940s coming in and they see, now they can see what the world is like now, like that, you know, so like they could see, but it, it is interesting to me too, how like at the resolution of Brigadoon is that he, he does end up leaving the community, but then wants to come back. The, the, American from the 1940s uh you know he decides he wants to come back and and then the rules can change (laughs) we couldn't change them for this guy who wanted out but we can change them for this guy who wants in (laughs) yes which I think brings me back to that question again of who gets an exception right and why and why are exceptions okay for some people and not for other people and what are the stories that we're telling about different members of our community for whatever reason it is for whatever um, actions they may have taken or, you know, whatever identities they might hold. Why do we see some people as worthy of the second chance and the Mm -hmm. exception and some people we don't? Right. Right. Um, I definitely want to get to talking about ragtime. Um, I have so many thoughts about ragtime. (laughs) Ragtime is another one of those interesting, I mean, also based on a huge book that's dealing with a lot of issues like yes. Lane's is but um in very different ways definitely bringing race into uh the situation and uh early 20th century american politics yeah, yeah. and you can't really talk about the prison industrial complex in the american context without talking about race Right. I mean, our our policing, especially if you're talking about the southern United States, grew out of um, gangs that were formed to 
you know, stop um, formerly enslaved people or free black people around the time of the Civil War from escaping and finding their freedom. Um, you know, everything from that to the war on drugs to redlining, like you can't really talk about these systems in America without right. talking about racism, especially anti-black racism. Right. Um, and I think ragtime really tries and I I think it ends up in some super problematic places. I just listened to the end of the show today for the first time in a couple of years. I hadn't listened to it actually since I started on my my journey to becoming an abolitionist and who who the end of this show. I think it's so hard because I think you have a show that is trying to be clear-eyed or reckon to some extent with the realities of racist oppression in the United States but also you you end up with a show in this instance the writers have ended up with a show where the white woman and the Jewish man who can be assimilated into whiteness I say as a white Jewish person um have a happy ending and our black characters are dead and they have been murdered either mm -hmm. by you know Colehouse is murdered by the police after being assured that he will not be and Sarah is like essentially like violently killed by a white mob and it's it's troubling who in this show I think is given a future Mm-hmm. For sure. And who is not. And and you know, if you go further back in the story, right, what has happened to Cole House is that he is a musician, he is coming up in the world as a black man, he has found the woman he loves, um, and he has this car that sort of represents upward mobility and being accepted into society for him, mm -hmm. which is then destroyed in a racist um act of vandalism and violence by this white group of firefighters mm -hmm. um and he he looks for redress in various legal ways right and right. is unable to get them and he is continually faced with a system that will not give him justice because he is black mm -hmm. and after all of that you know in his rage and despair, especially after the death of Sarah, he turns to violence. Um, but after all of this, I was listening to this song when, you know, Cole House and his men have taken over the Morgan Library and they send Booker T. Washington in to talk to him. And two of the lines that I wrote down are, one is where this fictionalized version of Washington tells Cole House, um, have the courage to tell your truth in a court of law. Mm -hmm. As though our courts were set up, you know, again, we have this vision of the court of law being the sacred space in which justice will happen, as opposed to a space in which all of the oppressions of the world are still present. Right. Um, and then he says, well, Cole House is worried that he's not going to get a fair trial. Mm -hmm. And Washington says, he has the line in the show, I am their mediator, sir, not their fool. And he says this in the context of guaranteeing Cole House safety and a fair trial. 
And as soon as Cole House acquiesces, he's immediately shot in the street as soon as he walks out of the library. And there's no reckoning with that at all. We do not see Washington, the, the way that Washington is portrayed, we do not see his character reckon with that fact. He made a guarantee on behalf of this system. Right. That he was essentially made out to be their fool. Mm. And we don't, we don't see any kind of reckoning with that. Right. Which I think is a shame. Yeah. Because then it just ends. It, it just ends then, right? Yeah, basically. Um, and, you know, we don't know what happens to the racist fire chief. As far as we know, he lives. We don't know if he faces any consequences for anything. It's just done now. Right. Um, and we see, um, you know, mother and Tata um you know moving to california and having a life together with their children one of whom is actually colehouse and sarah's son right um and i i was thinking today about the fact that it's specified in the finale that they moved to california mm -hmm. which is something that sarah had sung about in wheels of a dream she says mm -hmm. california or who knows where and she doesn't get to live that but the white characters do we end with the ghosts of colehouse and sarah watching their son go off and have this life in California with this white and white Jewish family singing wheels of a dream, which given what happened to the two of them right. is quite a song to put in their mouths at the end of this show. Right. Um, and we end essentially with this like celebration of diversity but again, none of the oppressive systems or institutions have been changed or challenged in any way. Right. They've just done what they are supposed to do, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I don't think that, I think that the show ends up propping up the systems that maybe it set out to challenge. Right. And it's a shame. This is a show about what the systems do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but then it wants us to feel good at the end. It wants us to sing Wheels of a Dream and be happy for this family at the end. And I just, I, I can't reconcile those two things. I think it's just good to, you know, as we watch musicals, to like look at like what, what police character, like how the story is presenting and viewing the police or how it's presenting and viewing um, like the idea of prison or the idea of jail like in a in a musical they might not have be in jail but there's always the idea there i feel like we live in a world where there's always the idea of jail yeah. <laughs> yes absolutely it's become so foundational mm -hmm. that i think it can be hard to remember that this is an institution that has not always existed it was created as a reform itself you know when when corporal punishment used to be the thing and, mm -hmm. and prison and jail were supposed to be like humane options instead of corporal punishment, right? Like, right. yeah, nothing is an eternal, but it can feel that way because it's become such a part of the world around us. Let's move on to our next section. Why is this so good? And we're going to be talking about the song You're Never Alone from the Bridges of Madison County. Yes. So why did you pick this song for Why is this so good? So for one, I, I do think this kind of ties into abolition and the idea of community care that we were talking about. It's a song about 
a community stepping up to help a neighbor in need, right? Mm -hmm. And if we're talking about the kind of communities that we need to build in order to keep people out of harmful systems, I think this is a great example. But it's also just, I just love this song. Mm -hmm. I cry literally every time I listen to it, which is all the time because I listen to the Bridges of Madison County all the time. Mm -hmm. And I never, ever skip this song. And I actually, you know, I listen, I listened to a bunch of episodes of this podcast, obviously, and I listened to the episode about this show. And I was like, oh, they didn't talk about You're Never Alone, which is my favorite song. So I was like, we're going to talk about it now. Bob and the kid One look at that fella's face I guess I knew what he did Too proud to admit he stuck When all his crops went down Lord knows we'd have backed him up To get a loan in town Damn fool when the bills came through He couldn't think of anything else to do Thought he was gonna lose the farm Waits till court goes to town Turns the thresher on and then lays right down So the hospital took off half his arm I know it ain't easy This is a long road Nothing is easy Out there on your own But if you're ready to stand up I tell you by God's grace We're all from the same place Right down to the bone never alone it's just i love it so much like i said it always makes me cry and it always makes me cry at the same place which is for some reason um when the the daughter sings told henry to wipe his hands and stand up straight when he speaks that's when i start crying and then i just sort of keep going especially when you get to the the sort of climax moment of the song, which is they're going to make it through the fall. What but about that line makes you cry? I, part of it, I think is just her voice hits me in some kind of a way. And I love that the different voices in the song have so many different qualities. So mm -hmm. it really gives you a sense of all different kinds of neighbors pitching in to help with different kinds of things, whatever they may be. Went down to the Hanson place to check on Cora and Bob Went by with the trailer hitch, but that's a hell of a job Language, Michael Brought Cora a chicken stew she's barely eaten for weeks Told Henry to wipe his hands and stand up straight when he speaks Cleaned out the ammonia drums Cleaned the attic out for when Bob's brother comes Pulled in six acres overall Had a talk with the bacon Got the State Farm guys to speed up the planes. They're gonna make it through the fall. But you know it ain't. So that you get this sense of like all of the different people who make up this community. I love the the underlying baseline of the song, which starts by itself in the beginning, and then you know you add the piano and all the other instruments, but it feels almost like the same kind of device as with someone in a tree. 
Mm. where you have this same repeated line happening to start us off that continues under the whole thing. And it really amps up the tension. There's a lot of tension at the start of this song when you find out that, you know, essentially a neighbor, a neighbor farmer to our central family um, saw his crops failing and was terrified of what that was going to mean for his family and their finances and their survival. And so he essentially, um, lay down in front of one of his machines and tried to kill himself didn't was injured um but the the shock to the community when this happens and the way they immediately pitch in to help him and to help his family and i there's something that i think is beautiful to me in the emotion the the two emotions in the sort of musical climaxes of the verses the first one is when um, Francesca's husband sings, so the hospital took off half his arm, and arm is the high note, right? And you can hear the shock and the despair in the way that he, oh my God, this happened to my friend. And then it's the same musical line later where they say, they're going to make it through the fall. Mm -hmm. And the fall is the climax, and it's the whole community singing together, and it's this achievement and this relief of they're going to be okay. We're helping them. They're going to make it. Um, and it's, it's two very different emotions yeah. reached by the same musical device. I, I just love this song so much. And it makes me think about the support of having that kind of community. And yeah. then we also end on, because it's Bridges of Madison County, there's almost a, a danger at the end of this idea of you're never alone because she's alone in her house, you know, with this new man who she is going to fall in love with, but she's never by herself. There isn't privacy is the flip side of there's always support. There's no privacy. Right. Yeah. The flip side of a community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's interesting with bridges of Madison County. Like I think the, their relationship and the two of them is like the main, you know, focus of the show. But there's so like, I remember when I saw it, like, oh, wow, they're, they're really telling a lot more of the story of like all these other people and like this community. I've never seen the movie or, you know, any of the source material of the, the show, but like, but that's something that musicals like I feel like a lot of them really lean into unless they're like a two person musical or something. And that's also a choice. But if you're doing like a, a musical where you're going to have a chorus of people um, like musicals do musicals can really do community. And I think, um, yeah. And it's just cool to see. It's always cool to see, you know, how that's done. And, and it is true. Like to have a song like this, that is about, community care in a show like this is, is very cool to see. Yeah. You're never alone. Let's move on to our final section, something wonderful. Just 
something in the musical theater world that we are excited about or something uh, that we want to give a shout out to? One thing that I am super excited for is the Merrily We Roll Along revival at New York Theater Workshop. Um, I actually, a friend of mine managed to get us tickets. Oh my gosh. I was going to say, are are you, are you actually going? Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But a friend of mine did manage to snag us tickets and we're going to see it. And I am so excited because I love that show to pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, It's such a favorite of mine. And I'm very curious to see, um, you know, what Jonathan Groff and Daniel Radcliffe are going to do with this. Yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. Yeah. And then also I'm, I'm a little bit more cautious about this one or I'm, I'm less uh, just plain excited, but I'm very curious about the Sweeney Todd revival. Um, I saw Annalie Ashford in the Sunday in the Park revival and she was brilliant. So I'll, I'll see her do anything, especially anything Sondheim. I think she's incredible. Yeah, well, I just saw a parade over the weekend. Nothing that I can recommend because now it's it was only a week uh, a week long thing, but I thought it was a really good production. And uh, I'm also excited to see. Uh, I need to get tickets. Hopefully, I still can. But the production of A Man of No Importance, the Aaron's Clarity Show that's being done at Classic Stage. Hoping to get to see that um, before that closes. So yeah. those are my things. I also really want to see A Strange Loop before it closes. Yeah, you definitely should. Yeah, I, I can't believe it's been this long that I haven't seen it yet, and I really don't want to miss that show. So yeah. definitely planning to get tickets to that before it's gone. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. You can write to scene to song at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by rating it on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Follow us on Instagram at scene to song on Twitter at Scene2Song, and on Facebook at scene to song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. Sign up for our monthly e-newsletter at scenetosong.substack.com and contribute on the new Patreon. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald, and be sure to check back in two weeks for our next episode.